This week on the show, we're showing you how you can join the fight of the coronavirus with FreeBSD. The WireGuard VPN how-to is what we also have for you with OpenSense. Couple new distributions, NomadBSD, GhostBSD and FuryBSD, so you get the refreshed uh, images there. PFBadhost was also uh, getting updates, 0.3 is out, and there is more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 343, FreeBSD Corona Fight, recorded for the 25th of March 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Treuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to Home Office Nation, everyone. Hope you're all staying home. And we'd like to give your home stay a little bit, uh, yeah freshment or pleasure as you would have it with our weekly episode of BSD Now here. And remember, the Microsoft Assistant is not called Corona. It's something else. Going to the headlines this week, we have fighting the coronavirus with FreeBSD. And if you think that is clickbaity, well, a little bit. So over on Alexander Leidinger's blog, he's got a little how-to on how to run folding at home on FreeBSD. And they're slightly involved set of steps, but... Since he posted this a few days ago, somebody has created a port so you can just package install Linux-Folding at Home and you will get the Linux binary of Folding at Home running on FreeBSD. And then you can use the configuration to decide what percentage of your resources you want to give to the project or you could pick a different project if you didn't want to do the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, folding or whatever. But you can use the information here to get set up and have your FreeBSD computers contribute to folding at home. Do you know if there's a group where people can contribute like their CPU power? Um, I know that folding at home used to have the concept of like teams where like yeah. all the people doing it on FreeBSD could put their resources together so that we would show up on a leaderboard or something. It has been a long time since I've really looked at folding at home. Yeah, I did city at home for a while and that went well. But that shut down, uh, I think, last month or something. Yeah, something recently. Uh, recently, yeah. I remember the, the SETI one. It's like we've we've analyzed all of the signals we've got. We're we're really alone in the universe. And <laughs> but this is a different client, and you could also do other computations for other causes, I guess. Mm-hmm. But since this is the most pressing one at the moment, I guess it's not too late to let uh, your little systems idle a little bit more productively. So, yeah, thanks for the people who made the instructions, uh, Alexander Leidinger, and for the people who made the ports. Ah, uh, oh, 0MP, huh? So there is some information about setting up teams and setting your team stuff under statistics on the uh, Folding at Home website. And it has a link to all the stuff for controlling the team stuff. Okay, so all the BSD folks can uh, join under that banner. Yeah, as I said, uh, thanks to ZeroMP for creating the port so that people can just do uh, make install or package install. So that's an uh, easy step. <laughs> Not an excuse anymore that you cannot join this effort. Then we have uh, something a little bit more for the people who have to stay at home. A virtual private network might come in handy and we have a how-to for WireGuard VPN on OpenSense. So this is on the homenetworkguy.com. And the introduction here reads, WireGuard is a modern designed VPN that uses the latest cryptography for stronger security, is very lightweight, and is relatively easy to set up, mostly. 
I say mostly because I found setting up WireGuard on OpenSense to be more difficult than I anticipated. The basic setup of the WireGuard VPN itself was, an e was as easy as the authors claim on their website, but I finally uh, came or I came across a few gotchas. The gotchas occur when you when your functionality that is beyond the scope of the WireGuard protocol, so you cannot fault them for that. Uh, the greatest struggle was uh, configuring the WireGuard to function similarly to their OpenVPN server. Uh -huh. I want the ability to connect remotely to my home network from my iPhone or iPad, tunnel all traffic through the VPN, have access to certain devices and services on my network, and have the VPN devices on my home uh, internet connection. WireGuard behaves more like SSH server than a typical VPN server, and with WireGuard, devices which have shared their cryptography keys uh, with each other are able to connect via an encrypted tunnel, like an SSH server configured to use keys instead of passwords. The devices are connected to one another, are referred to as peer devices, so that you know the terminology. When the peer device is an OpenSense router with WireGuard installed, for instance, it can be configured to allow access to various resources on your network. It becomes a tunnel into your network similar to OpenVPN. So that's what they were referred to in the WireGuard installation here, so that there's that's clear that what appear is meant and such. So you install the WireGuard VPN plugin, which is the first thing you need to do. Uh, you can find that in the system fire, uh, firmware and then plugins page. When you scroll down to the OS-WireGuard plugin and click the install button. That's fairly easy to do. Then it goes on with the configuration itself. First thing that needs to be configured is the WireGuard VPN server. Go to VPN and then WireGuard. There's the new page there. And click the local tab. And there you do all the local insta or configuration more like. Do uh, click the plus button to add a new WireGuard server. And then there's the enable checkbox that you should actually definitely make uh, enabled. So otherwise it's not going to do much. And then give the server a name of your choice. Leave the public key and private keys blank as they will be automatically generated when you click save. Uh, the default listen port is 51820. Uh, you can change that to a non-default port when exposing the port to the world. Uh, but they are using uh, 51821. Oh, okay. Just one, one more. Okay. Uh, it makes it a little less likely to be found by automatic scans. Yeah, it's like putting SSH port in a different uh, port, but it's, yeah, security by obscurity. Okay, if they like, they can change the port. So then you specify the DNS servers you wish the clients to use. And since they're using a two-pilehole DNS server, they included their IP addresses there. But you can, uh, of course, make changes for your local network and their DNS servers. And tunnel address, enter network address and like 10.0.0.1 slash 24 and leave the peers and nothing selected for now. Then you click save. Then you do the endpoint configuration for the WireGuard user. That's fairly straightforward in the VPN WireGuard endpoints page. Uh, you click also the enable checkbox and the name for the user you provide. You also leave the public key page blank or the field and then uh, will be obtained later when you're setting up the client for the user. Don't forget to save and continue with the WireGuard VPN server configuration enablement. So uh, when you've done uh, the points up to this point, there is the WireGuard server being enabled, but the peer is not fully set up yet. Uh, you need to do a different step. You need to get the, ah, you need to add the WireGuard interface, of course. Otherwise it's not going to do much networking. So you go to interfaces, assignments, and assign the new interface. Here it's called WG0. 
and click the plus button to make the configuration there. It's all outlined in the show notes that we have linked to the article and there are screenshots so you can compare with your OpenSense and yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Of course, they also show how you make the configuration on the client side. It's iOS, but you can also use other operating systems as well. So pretty straightforward. And then it walks through uh, creating the interfaces since you're going to have a separate WireGuard interface for each client and then how to apply firewall rules to those and uh, configure them how you want and set up the NAT or whatever if you want the incoming VPN connection to be able to use your home or your whatever internet the OpenSense has uh, to get out to the internet. And then it covers creating rules for you know what it's allowed to access on your network and then it shows actually copying the server's public key and, and configuring, in this example, an iOS WireGuard client. Yep. And then you have a secured network that no one else can listen into. Very cool. Very straightforward. And uh, WireGuard is fairly common these days or fairly popular as well. And uh, hopefully soon, actually, there will be a kernel native driver for it in FreeBSD. Ah, that's what people have been asked. Although the Go userland one works very well at the moment like unless you're pushing a gigabit across your vpn all the time it's probably fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah the kernel one will have more uh capacity this way but it needs a bit more time to be ripe for the masses and i guess the development of vpns and other software like this with all the home offices nowadays uh, will <laughs> accelerate that's just my prediction Yes, well, I'm guessing, you know, having that news last week might have been useful to a bunch of people that suddenly needed to set up extra VPNs. <laughs> yeah, on the on the spot, yeah, definitely. But uh, now you know it, and maybe you can change your current configuration without uh, being completely disconnected. All right, time for the news roundup this week. We have a bunch of distributions getting updates. The first one here is Nomad BSD 1.3.1 is available. Yes, so they have uh, the new version based on FreeBSD 12.1 um, with automatic network interface setup, uh, which has been improved. They also note that the size of their image has now exceeded four gigabytes, so you'll need at least a five gigabyte uh, USB stick to write it to. And now that the image is larger, they've also switched their default mail client from Claws to Thunderbird since, you know, if we're going over four gigs, we might as well go all the way. The Nomad BSD setup now locks all kernel module uh, packages to prevent users from running into problems when upgrading their packages. And they've also added uh, a graphical tool for modifying user accounts, the CHUSR tool. And they've added uh, Nomad BSD sysinfo, which is useful for gathering information about your system, especially if you're going to report bugs and so on. Ah, good. So the developers know about them. Well, and so they can know more about your machine and gather all the information that's often very technical and even I can't read some of it. Another note they have here is they've launched a forum. So if you're interested in Nomad BSD, they have uh, quite a few posts already. Ah, oh, good. So that people can exchange uh, experiences and uh, problems and solve them. Yeah, I see that, you know, somebody's here where they used the USB and they were able to install on their desktop just fine, but when they try to install on their laptop, they were running into issues. And you can see, you know, what... They did dissolve that and so on. Yeah, uh, Nomad BSD is a fairly new distribution on the BSD Sky, uh, but they have all the things you need, handbooks and uh, a good way of providing feedback to the developers. Uh, okay, that was Nomad BSD. Next up is Ghost BSD. They have their 20.02 release available. 
and we have a link to the announcement. Eric BSD writes in the announcement that he's happy to announce the availability of GhostBSD 20.02. ZFS partition has been added to the installer custom partition editor, and it's now possible to install GhostBSD with ZFS on the same disk containing Windows, Linux, or macOS 10 partitions. Oh, great. The system has been updated to a date. Whoa. 1021512. Anyway, the update station application has multiple improvements and numerous software applications have been updated. Uh, what has changed since 20.01, you ask? Uh, they list that they added the feature to force upgrade all packages on a system upgrade with update up station. Uh, the improved update station update progress, as well as the improved update station tray icon behavior. And a PowerD uh, was added to improve the laptop battery performance. Ah, yes, so that you can run a couple uh, minutes longer. Yeah, if I had some free time, I would like to do a similar thing for the FreeBSD installer. Specifically, you know, when I got my new laptop, it's like first thing I did, shrink the Windows partition down by 60% or so and want to install FreeBSD to the that new free space. It's a bit complicated. Mostly it require pulling some of the bits of the ZFS part of the BSD install out separately. Yeah. So that they can be skipped or something. It would be quite a bit of work to clean that up nicely. Really like it if someone would do it. In the meantime, you know, why hasn't Ed finished rewriting it in Lua yet? <laughs> <laughs> then it would be easy. Well, if there's people out there who have a bit of time on their hands at the moment and have some Lua skills, then they'll be happy to help them get in touch with us. Yes, uh, I have somewhere a flowchart that I've been working on to try to actually map out what the steps should look like and where things should fork and trying to get it all together to make sense to try to reduce the number of questions that we ask the user without taking away too many of the options they have and especially to try to avoid asking the user questions they wouldn't necessarily know the answer to. Yeah, make the computer do the thinking in most of the cases. Well, it's less that. It's just having better defaults, I think, sometimes. And also, instead of dropping them into a partition editor, it's like, do you want FreeBSD to be the only operating system on this computer, or do you want it to coexist with what you might already have? <laughs> How much Windows can you still tolerate? <laughs> well, it's more like, do you want it to erase your Windows or not? Yeah, we can make that for you. <laughs> yeah, right now in, in the ZFS mode, the options are... Erase everything or don't touch my computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. leave me uh, in the state I was. And the middle ground would be useful, I think. Uh, but that's not all we have in the new or updated uh, distributions today. We also have Fury BSD. Uh, they added XFC and KDE images. Joe Maloney writes in their announcement is that this new release is now based on FreeBSD 12.1 with the latest FreeBSD quarterly packages. This brings XFCE to 4.14 and KDE up to 5.17. In addition to the updates, this new ISO mostly addresses community bugs, community enhancement requests and community pull requests. Uh, due to the overwhelming amount of reports with GitHub hosting, all new releases are now being pushed to source Forge only for the time being, and previous releases will still be kept for archive purposes. Changelog has a couple of items that are interesting. Uh, cleanup leftover union directory uh, after install to disk, which is more like a cleanup. Uh, they fixed the bug of making sure that FuryBSD XORG tools installs the right version for NVIDIA driver, uh, 390 enhancement. 
That's good. And NVIDIA driver category to Fury uh, XORG tool enhancement as well. They restored the Beastie menu and default timeout on the live media enhancement. Ah, so these are all enhancements, yeah. They added updating documentation. Always good to have documentation up to date. They also updated the packages on the ISO to FreeBSD quarterly branch so that this will match the uh, version you're installing. Make the root mount read write on live image. Uh, they updated the ISO to 12.1. That's what we had. They added the DSP driver D package from quarterly repos. Uh, now that the authors have fixed what they are no longer need in the custom port. And XKB map uh, to common packages. This is fairly good for desktop distribution so that your uh, keyboard works the way you want. Uh, they disabled the console beep enhancement. Ah, excellent. Less noise uh, in unwanted situations. Uh, XFCE missing volume mixer and some other plugins as well. Yes, and then lastly, the the one that you know I've been wanting FreeBSD to do for a while is uh, they added the FreeBSD patch sets to their ISO builder so now they have an iso that's you know 12.1 p2 so if you do a fresh install if you use a recently downloaded iso it will already have all the updates in it rather than having to run freebsd update after its fact yeah it's like those big uh, software updates especially when we get much later in a release cycle it's like oh freebsd 12.1 came out x months ago and there's now been four sets of patches for it maybe we could update the isos so then they're newer but at the same time, we don't want to archive, you know, every different ISO ever. But, you know, maybe having the release ISO and then a latest ISO or something might be useful. Check out these three distributions, Nomad BSD, GhostBSD, and FuryBSD, and provide feedback or send us a like a install report to feedback at bsdnow.tv so that we can cover it in a future episode. Uh, then we have an update of PF bad host uh, 0.3 which is stop the evildoers in their tracks. So, of course, you might have guessed from the name, PF Bad Host is a simple, easy-to-use bad host blocker that uses the power of the PF firewall to block many of the Internet's biggest irritants. <laughs> it's nice that they say irritants. Annoyances such as SSH and SMTP brute forces are largely eliminated. Uh, showdown scans and bots looking for web servers to abuse are stopped dead in their tracks. When used to filter outbound traffic, PF Bad Host blocks many CD spooky malware containing and or compromised uh, web hosts. Excellent. Uh, filtering performance is exceptional as the Bad Host list is stored in a PF table. Uh, to quote the OpenBSD FAQ page regarding tables, the lookup time on a table holding 50,000 addresses is only slightly more than for one holding 50 addresses. Okay. PF Bad Host is simple and powerful. The block lists are pulled from quality trusted sources the firehole emerging threats and binary defense block lists are used as they are popular regularly updated lists on the internet's most egregious offenders uh, the pf bad hosts uh, shell scripts can easily uh, be expanded to use additional alternative block lists as well as setting custom rules so that you can block your neighbors using your netflix <laughs> PF bad host works best when used in conjunction with unbound adblock for the ultimate bad host blocking this version makes a number of important improvements. The big name feature for this release is subnet aggregation. Read aggregation, not aggression. Uh, subnet aggregation is used to take the address list and aggregate the addresses into the smallest possible representation using CIDR blocks. Okay, here, for example, two slash 24 CIDR blocks could be merged into a slash 23. Sequential addresses could be merged into a slash 31 or a slash 30, etc. 
or 8 slash 24 could be eliminated entirely if it overlaps with a slash 20 somewhere else in the list, thus removing duplicate entries, and so less to parse for the rule set. This provides maximum lookup efficiency while maximizing memory usage, and depending on the block list you have, you could have anywhere between 10 and 35% overhead reduction by enabling this feature. Interesting. I also see that they have a, a note here about uh, when we featured PFBAD hosts on BSD Now back in 2018. Ah, see? Now we're featuring them again. With the new version. They have a couple of other things listed here, but I guess we leave that for the people who are uh, interested in using the script. Uh, they have install guides and instructions how to make it work with your PF, and uh, yeah, should be fairly straightforward. It's time for the beast events this week. We have a update from Dragonfly BSD from the i915 DRM. Yep, so this is a another commit from uh, Francois Tejot into Dragonfly BSD updating their base version of the DRM driver to the 2016-0808 version, which adds quite a bit of hardware. That's good, yeah. So Dragonfly also works on more modern uh, laptops or with modern graphics. Very cool. Uh, next item is, did you know that Seashell is a punk rock? That's what this blog post tells us. This is the uh, blog.snailtext.com. And uh, they say that Seashell is a punk rock. Bill Joy's 1987 contribution to Unix shell is an immature, brash, little son of a bitch. And I love it for all that it is. Okay. Oh, that's a starter. Seashell uh, is synonymous with don't use Seashell. Every time I look up a how-to or work around it, uh, about it, inevitably there's at least one diatrip knocking it down. Seashell is punk rock in this regard. Few believe in its merits. So, low fidelity. I like Seashell quite a bit. It's from the heyday of BSD, and there's a certain bombastic nature in the tools that came from this movement. Seashell has this residue for certain. Never script with Seashell, they say. Well, there's snafus galore in this tool, and it's not going to pre pretend or deny it. Why? Just this week, something wasn't working, and the workaround was clearly mystical in nature. However, there's a ton that's great with this bratty shell. First, it's lean. Second, it's embraced by the OpenBSD folks. Third, it has arrays. Hell yeah. Uh, fourth, is scripts can start with the hash character only. Okay. And the fifth, Seashell RC, CSHRC, configuration files read somewhat beautifully. Ooh, okay. It's a small list, yes, but my point is there's some unique goodness, uh, or goodness to Seashell not least of which is the first point. I think there's a chance that a person can actually master this shell, committing all its features to memory. I don't think I could do that with Bash. Yeah. Then they say uh, in tight pants, uh, Seashell is probably in the alt-tech category for most modern developers. I don't think it stands a chance next to the likes of the endlessly features and popular Z-Shell and Bash. But that's my point about Seashell. It's little punk rocker from yesteryear. One that gets a ton of flack, though I wouldn't be surprised if either percent of this is just hackers repeating what they've heard secondhand. If they're into alt tech, would like to ponder over tools created in a stoke time of programming, or just want to see how bad Seashell is, give it a spin sometime. But be careful, you might be one of those people who falls under its spell never to use anything else again. You've been warned. Well, it's one of those, uh, what's, what's your favorite shell of Flame Wars, I guess? Uh, I use TCSH, which is basically CSH with some enhancements that include typo correction and so on. Mostly just because I'm used to it now, and when I try to use something else, it's just not the same. But, you know, someday I should probably just switch to Z shell. 
they also offer that feature for type correction uh, but you need to enable it yeah but does it work exactly the same yeah well <laughs> you have to massage the shells a little bit to your uh to your liking Massaging the shell is one thing, but getting my fingers to type the right thing after 20 years of typing something different, uh, it takes a while. Yeah, use what works <laughs> best for you. <laughs> this also is interesting, the next item, the most surprising Unix program from the Unix Historical Society by none other than Doc McIlroy writes and goes like this. Once in a while, a new program really surprises me. Uh, reminiscing a while ago, I came up with a list of eye-opening Unix gems. Only a couple of these programs are indispensable or much used. Uh, so what singles them out is their originality. I cannot imagine myself inventing any of these. <laughs> so the first was PDB7 Unix. The simplicity and power of the system caused me to turn away from big iron to a tiny machine. It offered the essence of a hierarchical file system, having separate shells, and a user-level program control that Multics had yet to deliver even after hundreds of man years of effort. Unix's lack, i.e. record structure uh, to the file system, were an enlightening uh, and liberating as it was a novel. And like, especially having things like shell redirection operators. But some of the interesting programs were DC, which is a math library for Bob Morris's variable precision desk calculator, which uses backwards error analysis to determine the precision necessary at each step to attain a user-specified precision as the result. Uh, in my software components talk at the 1968 NATO conference on software engineering, I posited uh, measurement standard routines which could deliver results uh, for any desired precision, but did not know how to design one, whereas DC still has one of the only such routines that I know of. Uh, or back in the day when they had typo. Typo ordered the words of a text by their similarity to the rest of the text. Uh, typographic errors like HTE instead of the uh, tended to the front as being dissimilar. Bob Morris uh, proudly said it would work as well as on Urdu as it does on English. Although typo didn't help with the phonetic misspellings, uh, it was a godsend for amateur typists and got plenty of use until the advent of much less interesting but much more precise dictionary-based spell checkers. When suddenly your computer had enough uh, memory to actually be able to compare your whole document to the whole dictionary. Yeah. Uh, typo was as surprising inside as it was on the outside. Uh, its similarity measurements was based on a trigram frequency, uh, which it counted as 26, the number of letters in the English alphabet, times 26 times 26. So basically 26 cubed. The small memory, which had barely enough room for one byte counters, spurred a scheme for squeezing large numbers into small counters. Uh, to avoid overflow, uh, counters were updated probabilistically to maintain an estimate of the logarithm of the count. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Or they had another one here called parts. So hidden inside the writer's workbench, Lorinda Cherry's parts tool annotated English text with parts of speech based on only a smidgen of English vocabulary, orthography, and grammar. From parts markup, a work, uh, writer's workbench inferred... Uh, stylistic or stylometrics such as the prevalence of adjectives, uh, subordinate clauses, or compound sentences. The Today Show picked up on Writer's Workbench and interviewed Lorinda about it in their first TV episode of Anything About Unix. 
I don't think that's something even like Microsoft Word has today where it can read a sentence and tell you that's the noun and that's the verb and that's the adjective. <laughs> <laughs> But you seem to be trying to write a, uh, yeah, a letter. <laughs> and <laughs> they have crabs. Uh, Luca Cardelli's uh, charming metaprogram for the Blit window system Uh, released crabs that wandered around in empty screen space, nibbling away at the ever more ragged edges of your active windows. <laughs> nice. Basically, possibly the first precursor to a screensaver. Yeah, it could totally pose as one. So some common threads were theory, though invisible on the surface, played a critical role in the majority of these programs, like Typo, DC, Struct, Pascal, and Egrep. In fact, much of the, their uh, surprise lays in the novelty of their approaches to the theory behind the program. And the other one is the originators of nearly half of the list, such as Pascal, Struct, Parts, and EQN, were women, well beyond women's demographic share of computer science at the time. Yeah, there's a... Uh, An interesting thing here about eGrep as well. So if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. Yeah, the Unix Historical Society has a couple of interesting discussions or even in their archives, there's some gold nuggets from the olden days. That is now the space for your feedback and questions. Uh, we have gotten a couple of them since we started our regular, oh, please send us more feedback uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv. So thanks for that. But keep them coming. It's definitely a good time to send us more. The first that we have this week is from Master One. Torn between OpenBSD and FreeBSD. That's what I have posted on Reddit about two weeks ago. And I've received some feedback from both sides. The posts were sent to slash r openbsd and slash r freebsd so that both groups could discuss the same topic. So it's not spamming, it's different audiences. Hopefully there's a bit of overlap. So like looking at the OpenBSD one, I think the, the top rated comment is about checking uh, the hardware compatibility to make sure, you know, the first thing to if, if you're going to pick one of these is make sure that all the ones you're going to care, compare between actually work. And he notes that it's the same uh, model that Peter Hanstein uh, wrote his blog post about. So he knows it definitely works on OpenBSD and it works on FreeBSD as well. He also has a couple other machines that he talks about in the thread. And it looks like he's leaning towards FreeBSD because of ZFS and boot environments. But they're wondering about what other things they can, uh, would want to consider. Yeah, Wi-Fi and stuff. Yeah, some fairly good answers here and... Uh questions following up yeah, uh, the top recommendation on the freebsd side is to try both for a week and then to see which one you like best so the question here goes what's your take on this did you ever think about using openbsd instead of freebsd especially on a laptop so i didn't but i dabbled in openbsd only briefly so i should probably do a test install in a vm now that i have a bit more time on my hands uh, for various reasons for me it's just i know FreeBSD so well that, you know, all my laptops have FreeBSD on them and I don't generally have trouble with it, uh, but I can understand how other people might. <laughs> and, you know, I also set out specifically when I buy my laptop to get one that I know works with FreeBSD, which I know is not a luxury everybody has. Like I know even Benedict had some trouble, you know, it's like I can only pick from the list of what the, the university will buy, right? Yeah. The standard laptops three choices or something but yeah the ones that they had is are both well supported in the bsds so yeah that's not the question but if you're starting out with the bsds and don't know both or any of them 
then it's kind of like, okay, I have to learn anyway. So um, you start with one and see how far you get and then pick the other and see how far you then get or how long you can work with these. There's plenty of stuff you can carry around or uh, carry over in the knowledge space. So you don't have to relearn everything. So just dig into the first one and try it out and see what, uh, keep an open mind and see how far you get. And if you have questions, get stuck. There's plenty of help out there on Reddit and in uh, online forums and stuff. And so, yeah, just start your journey. Just start walking. But yeah, I think that the best advice is actually to give each a try for a week or something and then decide because no one can decide what you like better. Yeah, it depends also on the use case. Uh, if you have a laptop, then it's a different beast than if you run a server. So there might be a different choice if you are have, having other needs. Or if your needs change and you say, oh, okay, it's good for the laptop, but for the server, I need the other operating system. Good. So thanks for that question. And uh, the next is uh, Brad, which uh, writing us about a follow-up to a Linux uh, or Linux's ZFS story. Ah, yes, that went around a bit. Uh, I remember this one. So uh, just for reference, he listed the ZFS uh, statement from Linux Torvalds that... Um, yeah, probably many people have heard about, but if you don't, here's the reference. Uh, and Brad writes, I don't have an issue with this uh, wanting to protect the kernel, but I have uh, been discussing this with another podcast. That and the three points that I took issue with is A, Linux's misinformation about ZFS. Okay. Well, so the first thing there is it can come down to the fact that there are more than one ZFS, right? There's Oracle ZFS and then there's Open ZFS. Now, Oracle ZFS is not as completely abandoned as Linus made it sound, but much closer to it than OpenZFS, which you know is not abandoned at all, obviously. Yeah, that might be a, an, a thing that they didn't know which ZFS version they were referring to. Uh, then B, Greg Crow-Hartman's obvious hatred for ZFS. Yes, that's a thing. I don't think anybody's going to change that. <laughs> Yeah, so here we go. And Z, the false dichotomy, uh, dichotomy to uh, he set up about ZFS and Oracle suing over it, but doesn't say a word about BetterFS, which was developed by Oracle, whereas ZFS was inherited in the purchase of Sun. Right, but BTRFS is GPL licensed and ZFS is not. So there's... There's already this... Uh, uh, they are different. There's not a similarity between them. Yeah, other than maybe some similarities in the design or the features that they have. Uh, continuing, by the way, glad to hear you come out of the shadows and appear on the show, JT. Ah, yes, see, we should do that again. Yes, I'll have to have him do that again, sir. Uh, then the update here. I was corrected by the author of the article about the license of BetterFS here, per Jim Salter. Uh, but you're off on BetterFS. The founding developer is Chris Mason. And although he was working at Oracle when he founded it, it was specifically founded at his own and or as his own and not oracles oracle has no ownership in it and when chris left for facebook he took ownership of the project with him and it doesn't belong to facebook either although they're using it increasingly if necessarily uh, very cautiously due to its tendency to blow up oops i just wanted to make that clarification yeah good to know and again uh, because btrfs is gpl licensed specifically so it could be integrated in to the Linux kernel is what makes it different than ZFS, which has a different license, which depending on your interpretation or your lawyer's interpretation, either can or cannot be integrated into Linux. Well, it could never be integrated source code wise into Linux 
code base, but whether or not it's okay to load the module uh, and ship that, uh, Linus and many other people uh, believe not, and Ubuntu believes they can. And I think the pre-release of 20.04 of Ubuntu with ZFS integrated uh, is is shit starting to ship now. I think it's leaked, even though you know it's not supposed to come out till April, but as of March 25th, I've seen a lot of people talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, the line in the sand is there, or <laughs> the writing's on the wall. So yeah, when we, when it's going out, then we'll probably have a look at it or see what the features are that they have and how well it compares to other ZFS, how like making imports of pools and stuff. But uh, this is uh, veering off a bit far from the uh, mail here. Definitely, thanks for that follow up. We'll see how this uh, goes. Maybe he will say oh zfs isn't such a bad thing after all <laughs> we'll see the th last and third one is uh, Felipe with a call for portuguese bsd user groups ah we covered a couple of user groups recently so this is a good uh, follow-up to this one uh writes like this hi bsd crew in september will be done in sintra which is in portugal an event to celebrate the software freedom day Ah, so far we're only penguins, but we also would like to invite at least the Portuguese beasties, but we cannot find active beastie user groups in Portugal. Do you know if there are some? So everyone, come out of the hiding. Yeah, I know there are a couple of BSD users in Portugal, so they should definitely check this out. Uh, as far as user groups, I don't know. Uh, but now is probably not the time to start one. <laughs> yeah, or only uh, remote and uh, not meeting in person. But yeah, keep this starting online and then when the situation is better, then you meet online, uh, not online. Well, you can meet online, of course, but then you do it in the meet space. Speaking of that, actually, the Hamilton BSD user group, we don't have everything sorted out yet, but obviously our meeting that was planned for April 14th uh, will be an online meeting. I imagine it'll just be a Zoom thing and we can get a bunch of people together and hang out uh, and it might actually allow us to get people from much further away that didn't normally be able to come uh, to join into our discussion yeah the wider hamilton <laughs> we're uh still getting it all coordinated uh so look for an announcement on the episode that comes out the week before that uh and basically just keep refreshing the website and eventually i'll put something there <laughs> it will appear yeah <laughs> That pretty much wraps up this episode. So thanks everyone for writing in and uh, sending us uh, stories and uh, articles that we can cover. And uh, stay home, of course. And then you can listen to us next week again. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.